Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode two of the Thos Hermes podcast season five. Yes, we are in season five already, and that's wonderful. And we had a great start last week with season five with our friend Frater Acker, who was our guest last week. And now today on the 12th of July in episode two, I am happy to welcome Dr. Dean Radin for a lengthy talk. And the episode is called Science Meets Magic. You will find out in a minute why it is called like that. I've had a few reactions uh, about the intro length lately of this show. Well, I have to say there are a few things I always have to mention in the beginning. I'm sorry, can't make that much shorter. But I would like to repeat something to you, which I have already said quite a few times here, that there are chapter markers that you can, of course, use if you want to jump over this intro, even if you jump over the music, you have chapter markers at the beginning of each musical piece, at the beginning of the first and of the second part of the interview, and of course also a chapter marker for the outro comments with next week's program. So, well, what can I say? If you listen to the intro, you know that there are chapter markers. Now you know, I hope. And those chapter markers, they can be used on most of the modern podcast players. And I hope you have one of those. But what I will do also from now on, and I have already done so on the first episode in this new season, I will add those chapter markers or timestamps as they are called there also on our YouTube versions. So also the YouTubers can now jump directly to the place they want to. Okay, I hope that helps everyone. Right, because what do I have to say here? Well, of course, I have to tell you welcome and happy to have you here with this with me in this show. Um, I want to give you quickly a little uh, information about the website of this show, which is www.thothermes.com. And that is spelt T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. I think this is important information because that is where you can find not only all the episodes, the old ones, the new ones, but also to each of them you can find the show notes and the information about who is talking here, how you can find more information about that person and the books we present and also all about the music and the musicians that are making this episode always much nicer. And you can also send me feedback there. And I really love your feedback and that's important. And I thank you for everything that you send me and give me your thoughts and ideas. And I also particularly want to thank to all of you who have sent me uh, music pieces and ideas of about their own music. Many of our listeners are musicians themselves and it's great to get their music and I will 
in the next few episodes use your music as I have requested from you and play it on our shows. Also, today we will have one of our listeners who will be featured as a musician in this show, and I'm really glad about that. Also, I want to remind you what I said last time, that uh, there will be a question and answer possibility with Frater Acker, who was our guest last week. Frater Acker said that if he, there were enough interesting questions that our listeners will put forward, um, he will do such a show. And I am happy to tell you that there are already quite a few nice questions that we received, but there is still room for some more. So... Hurry up, uh, I give you about 10 more days from today, 12th of July, 2020. And so if you send me those questions to info at thoughthermes.com, um, then I will be happy to put them together and we'll do that special question and answer episode with Frater Acker. And uh, you can, of course, always send me answers uh, questions sorry about that you can always send me those questions on twitter or facebook as well now yes i also have to talk about becoming a patron because this is the way that we can make this show possible here it's by your support by your financial support as well and i'm very happy for those of you who do that but i have a deal to propose to you a kind of a challenge you know I know it's a bit annoying that I need to talk about this every week and I know that, that it's a bit um, tedious to listen to it each week. Well, we have about 2,600, now it's 2,700 listeners each week, right? So if we achieve that 4% of you guys become patrons, 4%, that's not really much, that's about... 90 to 100 patrons that would be nice and that would really sustain this show for a good while and so once we achieve those four percent then i will not do any patreon requests anymore in the intro is that a deal okay well we have some way to go we have at the moment 39 patrons here and some of you also do donations i count them as well of course so a bit over 40, so some way to go, but maybe we can go it together and then we can drop this announcement here. Would be nice, wouldn't it? Okay, some music to start with. And as I said, today it is music by one of our listeners. And the guy who sent me the music is called Brian Lucas. Brian is an artist. He lives in Oakland, California. He's a painter, he writes and he plays with the bands Direwolves and Angel Archer and he does also some solo work as Old Million Eye and it's his solo work that we will present here today and that he gave me permission to use for this show. I will, of course, post more information on Brian Lucas, also in the show notes. He has a beautiful website with his paintings and artwork. And of course, also there are some links to his music that you will find in the show notes. So as I said, the music that we play now is from his solo work, which he performs under the name of Old Million Eye. And as Old Million Eye, he has launched two recordings, two CDs. One is called 
Teleportation Chronicles. Well, that sounds interesting. And the other work, the musical work that we are playing from here today is called Presence. And the first track that you're going to hear today from Presence by Old Million Eye, that first track is called True Woods. Enjoy. Thank you. 
True Woods from the album Presence by Old Million Eye, one of the listeners of the South Hermes podcast. More from him a bit later. I have to make another short announcement because you might be waiting for that. The South Hermes Academy is still hanging out there. I said I would give you more information during the past week. Well, I had some technical issues to solve, but now we are almost there. I promise during the next week you will finally get what the South Hermes Academy is all about. And I promise it'll be quite exciting. But now let's go to the interview and our guest today is, as I said, Dr. Dean Radin. Dr. Dean Radin, he is, uh, well, a medical doctor, as you might have guessed, but he is also chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He has a Master in Science on the Electrical in Engineering and a PhD in Psychology from the University of Illinois. And before joining the research staff at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, he held appointment at the AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, etc. And he has given over 500 talks and interview and his book, Real Magic in 2018, which was his fourth book already, has been translated into 15 foreign languages and is quite an interesting approach uh, between magic and science. He's going to talk more, of course, about that and in detail about that. Well, what is Noetic Sciences, that institute I was mentioning? It was actually founded by an astronaut, an Apollo 14 astronaut, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who had the profound experience that the feeling of interconnection of everything when he was flying back here from the moon to the Earth in his space capsule. And he saw that the uh, rapprochement between the scientific and spiritual interpretations of reality would be needed. And that's what it's all about today. And as I have now started to do, I will read you a short chapter from Dr. Dean Radin's book, Real Magic, to get you into the mood. And then we'll start the interview. Magic is everywhere, it is entitled, and it says, The possibility that magic is real can be terribly unsettling to those who'd prefer that it not exist. Consider Sir Alfred Jules Ayer, a prominent British philosopher who specialized in logical positivism. This is a critical philosophical position that utterly rejects any sort of metaphysical, religious or magical concepts. As might be expected, Ayer was a hardcore atheist. At age 77, he died. Fortunately, he was resuscitated. And to everyone's surprise, he reported a near-death experience. He described it as consisting of repeated attempts to cross a river and a red light, exceedingly bright and also very painful, responsible for the government of the universe. Ayo retained his atheism, but he declared that the experience had slightly weakened his conviction that death will be the end of me. That Ayo reported this experience is more astounding than it may seem. Lifelong logical positivists are tough. They don't slightly weaken their intellectual positions on anything. The link between magic and Ayo's near-death experience is theurgy, the third category of magic. Near-death experiences suggest that there may be forms of disembodied awareness or spirits. 
For many who have experience in NDE, it's a virtual certainty that such spirits exist. But so far, there's no strictly objective way to tell if that's the only viable interpretation. Another example of magic intruding into the mundane world involves William Friedkin, the director of the movie The Exorcist. Before he made his famous film, Friedkin hadn't witnessed an exorcism. And afterward, he decided to do so. He spent time with Father Gabriel Amorth, a Vatican exorcist. His experience with Father Amorth did not overcome his prior agnosticism, but after showing a video of a terrifying exorcism to three prominent neuroscientists and three psychiatrists and not getting the bliss dismissal that he expected from those experts, it scared the Hades out of him. Okay, well, you know what you're going to expect now in this interview. We talk a lot about that link between science and magic and the paranormal. So let's welcome Dr. Dean Radin. Just before we go there, let me remind you then in about half an hour in the middle of the interview, we're going to take a musical break. But now let's meet Dr. Dean Radin. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me to have today in front of the microphone of the Thoth Hermes podcast, Dr. Dean Radin, who comes to speak to us from the United States, from Idaho, where he finds himself today. And I'm very happy to have you finally on this show, Dr. Radin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us here tonight. It's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Um, the initial reason why I wanted to speak to you here was your latest book, actually, which is about 15 months back that it was issued, if I remember well, mm -hmm. which struck me when I saw it the first time by its name, Real Magic, because that sounds like a contradiction almost. And um, of course, for you and for people like me, I think it's the same. It's not a contradiction, but um, I would like to speak to you about that and about your other approaches um, to that question that you had through different books and also other of your activities. I'm thinking of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, for example. Mm -hmm. But before we start with that um, I would like to start with yourself because um, what always interests me is where my guests here started from how did they become the personality and how did they get the opinions that they have today where did it all come from so how did you become the Dr. Dean Radin that you are today um, especially of course in regards to your parapsychological work to your work in regarding uh, science and magic etc how did it all start what was the initiation for yourself in the very beginning well the truth is i don't know <laughs> uh, because i when i i think back uh earlier in my life at possible events that may have happened or things that happened and i can't really land on one it's not as though there was a transformative experience that was so mind-boggling that it changed the course of my life and in fact uh when i went to the first grade the first grade in elementary school mm -hmm. at the end of the of the course the end of the year the teacher would write a, a paragraph or two about the student so in mind she she wrote that among other things dean will be one of our future scientists. 
Okay. So my mother used to remind me of this every so often. And, and now when I, I look back on that, I, I wonder what did the teacher see in me as at the time I was five and a half years old or something like that, something uh, mm-hmm. was was telling her that this particular child will be a scientist. So my deconstruction of that is that I was always curious about everything. Mm-hmm. And the teacher probably saw that, that I asked more questions than the other kids, or I was, I don't know, more, more interested in learning perhaps than other kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so w- w- this is a predilection that I, I came in with pretty early on. And, and so why did I become a scientist? Well, because my first grade teacher said that that's what I should do. <laughs> and, and it seemed like it made sense. So, so there you go. Okay, but um, you became a scientist and that's your profession and that's your, your, your label. But you also then developed um, very special interests and probably also special capacities in, in a field that is not normally covered by science and by scientists. And how did that enter your life and then in the end your career? Well, some of it is probably because I, I read all of the fairy tales that were available when I was in elementary school. And I was always struck by the the idea of a fairy tale that it has it's like any good literature has multiple levels to it. So there's a surface story which we see as Disney cartoons, but there are many layers to it. And the, the lower levels of, of fairy tales are about mythology. Yeah. And so the allegories and mythology. There's something it is telling us something about reality, which in some cases cannot be told directly. It could be told through story, but not directly. And I somehow, I I felt that as a kid even, that I knew there were multiple levels to these stories. And from there, I advanced into science fiction and I read a huge amount of science fiction. And one of the uh, the themes that pop up in science fiction again and again is special mental powers. Right. Not not just necessarily psychic, but things like that, that our ability, our, our consciousness is more than a side effect of the brain. Basically that. Mm-hmm. So n- n- I go through school and, of course, at that time, by then, by um, by both junior high school and high school, which are ages roughly 12 to 17 or 18, I was already practicing the violin every day, one to four hours, because at that time I was reasonably sure that was going to be my career. I was on a career track to do that. Which it also became for some, for some years, didn't it? Well, for 20 years. I, yeah, I played yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. So uh, by the time you play almost any instrument for five years or more, you don't, you're, it's mainly about training your body to, get, to be able to do it all by itself because you can't spend time thinking about what you're doing and actually play very well. Sure. So... My, at least by high school or even before, I found myself playing. You do practice again and again just to get the body memory of it. But it was so easy at that point that I was doing things like uh, I'd have the music and I'd have a book on the music stand. So I'd be reading the book while playing some complicated piece. Because okay. in a sense, you know, you don't need all of your cognitive abilities to play. If you, as I said, if you're doing that, it's like trying to mentally figure out how to ride a bicycle while you're doing it. And yeah. it just doesn't work. Yeah. So 
my mind was occupied by lots of other things. And my violin teachers knew that. They could tell that I wasn't always paying close attention to what I was playing. So for many, many years, I had a sign on my music stand that said, learn to listen. And this is partially because in playing the violin, intonation, of course, is critical. And so you need to listen to what you're doing. But it was also a reminder to pay attention to while, while you're playing. So don't look at television and read books and stuff while you're practicing. So... In retrospect, uh, I have over 10,000 hours of, of practice that you can consider as a kind of a movement meditation because mm-hmm. it's all about focusing the mind and you're doing very complicated other things with your body at the same time. And at the same time, remembering 90 minutes to 120 minutes of a repertoire. Sure. So... I didn't think much of, I I didn't imagine that it was like a meditation at the time because it hadn't occurred to me. But in retrospect, that's essentially what it was. May I ask, did you play as a solo violinist or did you play in an orchestra as well? Orchestras, quartets, uh, chamber orchestras and soloists. And the, the fact of playing in an orchestra, in a group, did that change for you, that approach, that... Uh, mental approach that you just explained? Well, in orchestras, I was almost always the concertmaster. Yeah. So the concertmaster is, of course, playing, but also leading the rest of the strings. So there, you, you, don't, you don't have much time to, to have your mind wander. So that was also a focusing mechanism. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, at least during orchestra practice, Depending if like you're, if your section is playing, you're concentrating. If it's not playing, which is the case in, in orchestras oftentimes, the whole string section is fooling around. Mm. I mean, we're, we're passing messages and, and doing things with our feet. And, and like uh, a favorite trick would be that uh, if you're dist- distracted for just a second, generally our uh, the instrument cases would be under our seats. Mm-hmm. So the person behind you can grab the, your, your case and pull it backwards while they're not paying attention. And so after a particularly boring section where the strings aren't doing very much, uh, you'll find that all of the cases have been pulled to the back of the stage <laughs> because everyone's doing the same thing. And then of course, then you look down and say, damn, I wasn't paying attention to that. <laughs> so, yeah, so there are lots of funny things that happen even right. even while an orchestra is playing reasonably difficult things because it's it's like it becomes mechanical after a while. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's very interesting. And but but sometimes musicians call it like that. Also, sportsmen on high level call it the flow. You know that that yes. kind of flow. Is that what you experienced? Could that be compared to that? Yes. So we would call it the zone. The zone. So, yes. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. mm. So yes, occasionally during practice or during a performance, everything was perfect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the musical performance equivalent of a mystical experience. Right. And so not only could we feel it. At that point, we didn't need a conductor. In fact, the conductor is getting in the way. It's like totally mm-hmm. irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And the audience would respond differently as well. Sure. So you'd, you, you would feel these moments of some kind of collective gelling of everyone. And then it would, it, and emotionally, it, would, it not only would sound good, but it would feel good. You'd yeah. feel that you were part of this grand uh, thing happening. It didn't happen all the time, but it would happen often enough so that it was pleasant when it happened. Yeah. And from there, from that musical career and your science 
your wish to become a scientist, let's put it that way. I don't know how much that happened at the same time. Did you already start working in uh, st scientific studies when you were still playing as a, as a violinist or did it overlap or did it come one after the other? When I went to college, uh, before I went, I also have had a very strong pragmatic streak mm -hmm. in my family and in myself. Uh, we, we asked uh, friends of the family and my family and relatives and stuff, uh, what, is a good, what is a good degree to, to get if you're going to college? So we have professional musicians in, in the family as well as professional artists. Mm -hmm. And they all said, all of them said, do not do music as a profession and do not do art as a profession. Well, so what else should I do? Well, engineering is good. You could get a job in engineering. And fortunately, I was also very interested in mathematics, science, and engineering. So I figured, okay, I'll continue to play music. And I was concertmaster of the university orchestra, but I was in the electrical engineering curriculum mm -hmm. and found, well, that was, that was good. I mean, I liked that too. And, and it was very pragmatic. I was mm -hmm. paying attention to the advice I was getting from family members. Uh, and then I went on to get a master's in electrical engineering because by then I knew I really, really do not want to become a professional musician because it's really tough. I mean, it's a very difficult line of work. So if you're not completely passionate about it, then don't do that. And I was, good. Yeah. I was good, but not passionate. You know the phrase by Leonard Bernstein who said, uh, if, you re if you think about becoming a musician, don't. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. If your passion forces you to do it, you have no choice. Exactly. But if you do have a choice, then don't don't do that. Yeah. Play for yeah. fun. Yeah. So I did. So I got a master's in electrical engineering, and one of the continuing threads throughout my life is curiosity. Mm -hmm. What my first grade teacher taught. And so when I finished my master's degree, I, I knew I did not want to become an electrical engineer. Okay. Because it was too limiting. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to know everything. Right. So uh, at the time, uh, the thing that was most attractive was artificial intelligence. Sure. Which was in the f like the first... The, the first rush of enthusiasm in AI at the time. Uh, and I could have gone into the hardware side, making specialized machinery like parallel computers, or into the software side, which was simulating cognitive abilities and that sort of thing. So I would chose- Would that be the early 80s uh, approximately or? This would have been the late 70s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So I decided to go into cognitive simulations. And so I switched into psychology and that's what I ended up getting my doctorate. Uh, almost everything that I was doing was actually AI, except that it happened to be in that that discipline because there was no else, no no place else to go at the time. Interesting, yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's why you ended up in that finally. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, that's fascinating. Well, but at the same time, I was also interested in in psychology and the use of statistics and mathematics yeah. and everything else. So. I don't know, I, uh, the label of being, people ask, what do I do? And so, well, I can say my doctorate's in psychology and say, oh, you're a clinical psychologist? No, you're a research psychologist, kind of, but I've actually spent more time doing psychophysiology and physics and parapsychology and a whole bunch of other things. So, you know, I try to pull it all together. So you're the renaissance man in psychology, actually. 
And there are others that I have met. And then, and then, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. that unique, but uh, to, sometimes the labels of a discipline uh, are stereotypes. So people imagine what it is that you do, true. and they're almost true. never true. But don't you think, I mean, maybe this is just a little, a little side question, but don't you think that um, this is something you encounter quite a bit in people who work with esoteric occult um, subjects that they are, that they are hard to be put on one subject are all of them are kind of have a holistic approach to the matter. Do you encounter that a lot or is that something that you would think is rather a rare occasion? Uh, I would say it is more common among um, older people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so young people who tend to get into esoterica are interested in the mystery and the power and all that stuff. And they mm -hmm. may not know very much about anything else. Uh, just with experience of age and education, you begin to see it in a wider context. Mm. And of course, like anything that you study, it's much more interesting when you understand the history and the culture and, and the many varieties uh, of ways that people approach the topic. Yeah. So, so I, I don't, I'm not a, a professor, so I don't teach. I mean, I'm a research professor, but I don't teach students. So I don't hang yeah. around younger people very much. Yeah. So other people, my contemporaries are about my age, plus or minus 10 years. And they, they have a much more sophisticated way of thinking about the esoteric literature and practice than yeah. younger people do. Certainly. Yeah, sure, sure. So, but how did then... Well, let's take it by the word esoteric sciences enter in your in your life or I mean, was it through parapsychology that you just mentioned before or how did that how did that all start in your life? It probably started because my mother was practicing yoga. Mm -hmm. for as long as I can remember. Right. So there was this uh, TV show called uh, Lilius. Uh, Lilius was the name of a yoga instructor and be, mm -hmm. sort of popularized yoga on television. Okay. So my mom used to watch that and I used to, I mean, I, I was a kid. I didn't know any better. I figured out oh, that's interesting. But we also had books in the house on things like the, um, the Masters of the Far East and books on uh, yogis and Indian philosophy. Because my, my dad isn't, was an artist, but he also had degrees in philosophy and English. Right. So we, we had lots of philosophical books around the house. We didn't have a television until I was 14. Mm -hmm. So I read everything. And I was always curious about those, those adult books, you know, that I was perfectly, I knew what children's books were like, but those adult books were very mysterious because they had a lot of words in them and no pictures. <laughs> so every so often I'd pick up one of those books and uh, so surprised myself. Sometimes I didn't know all what the words meant, mm -hmm. but I can tell that this, this was a different layer of, uh, of knowledge in the books. So I was particularly struck by books on mythology, uh, both Eastern and Western. And that kind of led me into the space of at least realizing that there, there was a, uh, a body of literature that would be called esoterica. Mm -hmm. and, and more specifically that, that there are worldviews. The philosophy describes assumptions, which are basically worldviews that people adopt and that different cultures have different worldviews. Mm -hmm. Of course, 
growing up in, in the United States from the 1950s to 1970s or so as my, my youth, uh, it's a very particular kind of culture with very specific kind of worldview. And you're getting pounded on that every day when you watch yeah. TV or anything. You're inculcated in this particular worldview. And so I was curious that, well, there are many other worldviews that have been around a long time that mm -hmm. I'm reading about in these books, and I never hear about it. So, and this is one thing that struck me in both in college and graduate school. We have, we're saturated and permeated with stories about special mental abilities, psychic abilities, magical mm -hmm. abilities, all kinds of things. And it never shows up in the academic world. Which so the academic world is a subset of, of the culture's worldview. And so in this worldview, all of these stories which permeate entertainment, mm. they don't even exist. And I thought yeah. that there's something very peculiar about that. So I that that part of it never left my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, the parapsychological element came in when in high school when I realized that these kinds of abilities could be and have been studied by scientists. Because mm -hmm. I was interested in science sure. too, yeah. And the stories, of course, are very interesting. But my my curiosity was pushing me to say, well, but is that really true? Right. And so here was a method that you could use to see if it was really true. Yeah. And once I learned that there were people who were actually doing this as scientists, that's that was really the hook. Okay, and that that opened the door, which made you made you enter in, into that field. Can can yeah. you say it like that? Right. Yes. Right. That's exactly mm -hmm. what did it. Mm -hmm. But the, let's go back to the mythological part, maybe still a little bit, because I find that very interesting. How you how you define that? Did did that open? Uh, do you have an explanation why, in general, the academic world does not open to that part of our sociological background? Could we name it like that? Um, why why are, are they afraid of it? What what's the reason, in your opinion? Well, it's, you can trace it back to, at least to the Enlightenment mm. when there's a split between uh, who's going to study the physical world and who's going to keep the, the mind. So it's a science-church split. Right. And that was also around the time that materialism as a doctrine became very popular. Mm. And materialism is so powerful as a way of understanding the physical world that it, it, it now is the currency of truth. So right. scientists are ta are not taught that they're dealing with a doctrine of materialism. It's not even mentioned anymore. It's become invisible. Mm -hmm. But of course, the many scientists have been idealists, not materialists. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. All, almost all of the founders of quantum mechanics were idealists. I was going to go to quantum mechanics exactly because yeah. that's yeah. yeah. And and so no one is is complaining that they're not good scientists because they're not buying into materialism. Yeah. But in today's world, if you materialism is so strong and generally scientists are not taught philosophy they don't they're not they're learning the history of science or the history of philosophy or the philosophy of science or the sociology of science mm -hmm. so it's very easy to come through an entire career and then become a professor and keep inculcating generation after generation with something that is so obvious to someone who grows up in a materialistic worldview that any other worldview is nonsense And yeah. I see this all the time in terms of reactions to empirical data that we can show. Yeah, telepathy is really real. Here's how we know that it's real, using the same methods that you're using in your science, but it's rejected. And when you, and you dive down into why it's rejected, it's because it violates materialism. 
Yes. You said that partly that initiated at the time of, of the Enlightenment. Um, do you think that also, uh, I don't want to blame it all on the church, don't get me wrong, but don't you think that also uh, the spiritual part, let's, let's be neutral, it's not just the Catholic or whatever church, but the spiritual part of the thinking has its... its um, Well, it's part of the reason why this split happened, because they did want to have a, a, mono, a monopoly on the on the on the spiritual thought. And when you enter spiritual thought through scientific eyes, that might also break that monopoly. Yes, that is certainly part of it, that uh, there, there was an agreement. The Council of Trent was mm. an agreement, essentially, saying, uh, okay, we can see the value in understanding the physical world through science. Mm. I mean, and many proto-scientists paid with their lives in challenging yes. that until eventually it became okay. Uh, but at the risk of uh, the things having to do with your spiritual sense, which at the time was probably equated with the mind, everything mm. with the mind, mm. we have your subjective sense. Don't go into that space. Mm -hmm. And so there was a very strong split. And, and you can see it, even uh, Descartes was, was struggling with the split. That's why like dualism is a very easy way of dealing with it now. Because, yeah. Okay, well, there's this and that. And when you take care of this and the church can take care of that. And, and that creates a split. So in the academic world today, uh, besides materialism becoming such a powerful method, it almost doesn't address at all this other side. It doesn't address the spiritual side, except in a historical sense. And the way you can see this is that when you look at, at the curricula of religious studies in the academic world, even though religious texts are saturated with all kinds of strange paranormal things, mm -hmm. the idea that somebody would say that these actually were real, like the texts were real as opposed to allegories, you never hear that. It's like this is very taboo to suggest in a religious studies curriculum that those stories actually are reflecting something about truth. Yeah. So, yeah, Definitely. that's where we are. I don't know if this is the same in, in the English speaking world, but in the German speaking world where I come from, for example, in universities, in at my time, we are about the same age, uh, you and I. And when I did my studies, This faculty was called um, spirit, well, Geisteswissenschaft, which means science of the of the spirit, of the of the yeah yeah for the spirit. Let's call it that way. Today they are called social sciences. Yep. So even that name has disappeared from universities. Yep. I don't know if it's the same in, in, in the English speaking world, but that's at least happening here. Yeah, typically here would be called religious studies. Yeah, right. Uh, right. But I, I don't think, I mean, the, it's changing a little bit. Like in, within medical school now, there's a growing interest in the value of asking people about their spirituality for their health purposes. But that's in medical school. And right. that, that's seen in a purely pragmatic way. But within mm. the academic world, uh, religious studies as a study of spirituality by itself is is in the academic fashion which is mm -hmm. which has its own worldview yeah and of course the the interesting thing about all this is and it goes true with with psychic phenomena as well if you're asking for private opinions 
of the the faculty in the, and they will not become public so it's anonymous private opinions they have it, the same exact interest mm-hmm. in all of these subjects as okay. anybody outside of the academic world except that the, the 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 taboo is you cannot talk about these things in public within right. the academic world right right yeah i i see that and i found it interesting that now with this podcast and i might say that here now um that there have been now lately two or three approaches that i got from people who uh, are from the academic world working in that field but who will now start to open themselves up and maybe also speak on this podcast so i'm looking forward to that i i hope you have great success there. I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult nut to crack. Absolutely. But how how did you start cracking that nut? Because I mean, now we've laid out the problem, but you went much further than that. You 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 started entering that. Well, I, was your first book supernormal? I think that was the that was the oh, first. No, the first book was called The Conscious Universe. That was the first one. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, because I, I was mentioning supernormal now because you just spoke about yoga and your mother when she when she did that and and supernormal talks a lot about the yogi approach as well. But how did you how did you decide I want to do something about that? What you just defined as a problem, and how did you do it? How did it all happen? Well. I, I I didn't realize that the the strength of the taboo, both from the scientific side and the religious side, Mm -hmm. uh, until I I kept bumping up against it through experiences. So my my first real job after graduate school was at Bell Laboratories. So at the time, the the Bell system was the telephone system of the United States, just one giant thing. And the laboratory had 50,000 technicians and scientists, and there was big science in every, every way you can think of it. So because I was interested in things like precognition, telepathy, because you can test for those things at Bell Laboratories at the time, uh, and this is true almost in any large scale scientific enterprise, that you're working in groups like I would work in groups of 20 to 25 people and I would finish my stuff and we're waiting for other people. What else are you going to do? So I was I started doing experiments, parapsychological experiments at Bell Labs and I would I would recruit my colleagues to to work to participate in them, and most of them said, "Fine, this sounds interesting." Mm-hmm. One of them, to my surprise, said, "Absolutely not." Well, well, why not? Because it's the work of the devil. Now, these are all highly technically trained people in Bell Labs, and I, and I was taken aback by that comment. You see. Sure. We, the do it, participating in an experiment looking at psychic phenomena is the work of the devil yes later i learned that he's a lay minister so he had a very strong religious reason for why he was saying that but it it really uh, highlighted to me the this idea that uh, if you come from depending on the worldview that you come from and he was coming from a fundamentalist religious background or even the catholic catechism it says that this kind of phenomenon is the work of the devil. Do not do it in any form. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's real. So yeah. from a religious yeah. side, you, you, and this is, of course, not true of everyone who's profoundly religious, but at least from some religions, you shall not do this because it says, the, the doctrine says don't, don't do it because it is real. And from the scientific side, don't do it 
because it violates what we believe to be real and what Absolutely. we believe would not be real. So yeah. I began to see these these kinds of responses to to the experiments I was doing and even the literature in general. Um, and in the background, you can probably hear my dog barking. Yes, that's okay. <laughs> it's one of the the issues about work at home. Um, yeah, is, we all have that at the moment. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so how did I do this? Well, I also have a rebellious streak. You'll find probably among many ma magical practitioners and people doing parapsychology that they're iconoclasts. Yeah. And one of the characteristics is I don't care what other people think. Yeah. I'm, I'm driven by my own curiosity. And uh, I could be curious about something up to the point where, where I either feel that there's nothing to it because mm. right? there's not yeah, everything sure. is worth of course but yeah. i get a sense that this is really interesting now like way more interesting than any kind of conventional work then i i don't care what other people think i know that some will and some have actually tried to stop me in both in academic and industrial settings do not do that you're not allowed to do that okay uh i do not respond well <laughs> to, to those kinds of suggestions. Yeah, but good for you. <laughs> and so uh, I, I've just continued doing it because I, I find it the most interesting thing that any scientist could do. Yeah. And, but you succeeded as opposed to many others. So why do you think is that? Well, you have to also demonstrate that you're, you're credible in, in whatever job you're doing, you need to be good at that job and show sure. that you're credible and valuable. Sure. So I always made it my business to show I am both valuable and credible. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I can get away with being eccentric. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's the view that this, you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's doing good job. So, you know, if he's going to do this other stuff, OK, we'll let him get away with it. Yeah. That's that's been the strategy and that has worked. I hope you're enjoying this talk just as much as me and uh, we are going to return to continue this talk, of course, in a minute. But now, as we are used to this already, we are going to take a little musical break. And again, it's from our listener, Brian Lucas, who is providing the music for this show today and his appearance as Old Million Eye, as his solo performance are called. Uh, he presents another track now from Presence, from Presence, which is his latest CD. CD. And the second piece we are going to hear now is called Son of Salt. Enjoy. <laughs>
Son of Salt from the CD Presence by Old Million Eye. And now we return to Dr. Dean Radin and continue that fascinating talk about ancient wisdom and modern science and a guide to the secret power of the universe. Sounds good, doesn't it? Good. Well, if you're interested in his other books, that was real magic that I just quoted, but there are those other books. One is called Supernormal, one other Entangled Minds, and there is The Conscious Universe. They're all really exciting books, and you can find more about them on the webpage on thoughthermes.com and in the show notes. Right, just after the second part of the interview that we're going to start right now, um, there will be old Billy and I coming back again with another track from Presence, which is called Within the Leaves, that follows immediately, directly the end of the interview, after which I will come back with a few announcements for next week's episode three. Okay, but for now, let's go back and talk to Dr. Gene Radin again. Is it possible for you in two minutes or in a few phrases or take as much time as you want or need for that to explain a general approach of your view of that is it an idealistic world or what is it to 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 give a kind of a, a global view on your worldview maybe that's a bit uh, a large thing to say but is it possible so that you can a little bit enter for our audience uh, how you approach that not contradiction that but that's sometimes seen as a contradiction by many people right so in graduate school i was a complete materialist Partially because I had at that point had not studied the philosophy of science and, and I didn't even realize that I was working within a worldview. So I was definitely a materialist. Uh, it took many years, I think, before I realized, first of all, that there are other other worldviews, uh, that there are many very well-educated people who have written about this, that the founders of quantum mechanics are idealists. It, it, it's just simply filling in the history of science and the ways of thinking about how the world works. So I think it all came together uh, partially as a result of writing books because I, I had to know enough to be able to to echo it back in a way that people would understand. But the, the bottom line is that uh, from a naive perspective, idealism is usually rejected from a materialistic perspective because it, it raises the specter of uh, th that uh, nothing is real except you. And, and, and of course, that's not true, that you are embedded in some large systems that we, we don't completely understand. But solipsism is a way of that somebody would argue that it can't possibly be the case. Like mm -hmm. your, your consciousness is not developing everything because, well, the universe was here before there are any people around. So how could any of that be true? Now, when I look at those arguments, they're very, very naive because, first of all, is human consciousness the only form of awareness? That, that can exist. Now you find thought leaders in many disciplines in science talking about panpsychism. So everything's conscious, all the way down to electrons and below and things, you know, the earth and the sun and beyond. Yeah. So there's nothing, nothing that would prevent a universe from being here because you don't need humans to, to have conscious observation. Um, the other objection I hear oftentimes is uh, if, if what you're doing is true, referring to precognition or clairvoyance or whatever, 
then everything we know about science has to be thrown away and we have to start over again. Mm. That's an expression of fear. Well, yeah, fear, sure. <laughs> fear and ignorance, because it, it, first of all, it's not understanding that it's not my belief. My belief is based on data, yeah. not not what I read in a Harry Potter book. Yeah. So I think that the way to solve this issue is, first of all, uh, the only thing that we actually ever know is our own awareness and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. That is it. Mm-hmm. Everything else is an inference. Mm-hmm. Right. We can't tell if we're a brain sitting in a vat of water or some kind of fluid somewhere and dreaming all of this. So all we know is our awareness. So that's like that's like step one in, in thinking about mm-hmm. nature of idealism. Mm-hmm. But I think the other way is and I've written about this in, in real magic is to uh, imagine as best as we can tell in terms of empirical truth like facts that we can consensually agree that these are real, we develop a hierarchy of disciplines in science. Mm-hmm. So the bottom, the bottom layer of this pyramid is physics, yeah. matter and energy, information, mm-hmm. that sort of things. And from that, we imagine emerges chemistry, and from that emerges biology, and from that emerges mm-hmm. psychology. And somewhere near the tip top of, of this, this pyramid, consciousness emerges out of it merges out of brain activity, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So this is a very straightforward, classical materialist perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a comfortable one to be in because we we know how to deal with materialism. We, Mm -hmm. you know, reductionism as a method is extremely powerful. So unless you have a reason to question that, you don't. And most most (laughs) neuroscientists, I don't, don't have any reason to question it. So they, you know, you're talking about telepathy. Well, that's impossible. Well, why is it impossible? Well, because it doesn't match. Well, what about a quantum mechanical way of understanding things? Not enough people understand quantum yeah. mechanics to realize actually, even in a materialistic way, yeah. quantum mechanics is no longer materialism. Mm-hmm. It like mm-hmm. violates all of the tenets of classical materialism. So Absolutely. it's not materialism anymore, but nevertheless. <laughs> So the way that I put it then is say uh, each one of the layers in, in these disciplines is it's an emerging layer. It emerges upwards. Right. There's also downwards causation. You know, like I, I can be doing something that will affect things at a lower mm-hmm. level. So there's mm-hmm. upwards and downwards causation in this pyramid. That's how we understand reality. Mm-hmm. We don't actually understand how consciousness emerges out of this at all. Mm-hmm. There's, nobody has any idea how their yeah. models, but yeah. the, the models at this point are mostly materialistic. Mm-hmm. They have to do with how information flows from this and that. They don't say anything at all about this internal sense of awareness. Yeah. So we do what Einstein did, which made him so famous. We simply by fiat say, okay, let's make this assumption and see where it leads us. So the assumption we'll do is add a layer underneath physics mm-hmm. and we'll call it consciousness. It's like pure awareness. It's woven into the fabric of reality. It simply is. And from that emerges either symbolically, mathematically, through information, it merges the physical world as we perceive it. Mm-hmm. And, and then from that, within physics, the slice of physics, the textbooks are correct. They just don't talk about deeper layers yet. Okay. And in chemistry is correct and biology correct. All of it is correct, except that the assumptions about where consciousness come from were not correct. 
In fact, from this perspective, just like electrons from the physical layer saturate everything in, in chemistry and biology and above, mm -hmm. now we're saying, well, there's elements of consciousness, of awareness that are you find everywhere in physics and everywhere in chemistry and everywhere up and down this entire pyramid, right. including upwards and downwards causation. Mm -hmm. So con consciousness, or thinking of it as awareness, emerges into the physical world and can manipulate it. Right. And so on, all the way up. And then likewise, things at the level of cognition, like brain, mind stuff, can push all the way down and manipulate consciousness as well, awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, this is completely compatible with all of the esoteric literature, which is basically it's based on, sure. on the yeah. idea of consciousness as primary. Yeah. But it doesn't, it does no violence at all to science from a materialistic perspective. What it does do is make current science a special case of a larger worldview. Okay. And that is the entire history of science. It has always done that. Every new yeah. development has found that it's a special case of something that's actually bigger. Is that the famous black swan theory, basically, no? That It, Or is there something else? Yeah. No, it's it's more related to the the shocking discoveries that classical physics is a special case. Okay, of, of, of yeah, yeah, of relativity and quantum relativity, mechanics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but the, you can see, you find examples of this in virtually every area of science. Right. The, that what right. we know, what we think we actually understand at this point, always becomes a special case, because if what we know is actually pretty tight in terms of empirical fact, mm -hmm. that's not going to go away. But the assumptions that give rise to the fact, that can change. Okay, and they build a new layer on top of, of the special yeah, case. Yeah, th that begins yeah. to yeah. explain, well, well, why does biology work this way? Well, now we have a more comprehensive explanation. Right. What we currently understand about genetics, for example, is still a huge amount of DNA that we call junk. Yeah. We don't know what it does. <laughs> what it does, yeah. However, I have a story about that. So the story is this. So for years now, we've been interested in the genetics of psychic ability. And this, this comes about because of legends in virtually every culture that some people are better at this than others. Mm -hmm. uh, people that we label as witches or Wiccans or people who do practices, they seem to have some kind of a talent that other people don't have. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. It suggests that there's a uh, either something that is uh, inherited uh, and the in inheritance is then tricky because it could be uh, nature or nurture. Mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. the nature is the genetics and nurture is the belief within a family. Yeah. So how do we, how do we decide which is which? So we're taking the genetic approach and using modern genetic methods to find people who are psychic from psychic families and we vet them for actual talent. Then we get their DNA and we run the genomes and see, are they different than people who don't claim that they're psychic and don't come from psychic families? Mm -hmm. And the short answer is yes, there's a difference. Okay. But it's not in the coding DNA, All at right. least so far, what we found. This means that it's in the junk DNA we find a difference. This is a portion of, of the exon. Is, that's the portion of DNA where that codes for proteins, which okay. basically mm -hmm. makes us. Mm -hmm. But even in the exons, there are portions, if you think of it as like a long string, there are portions of it which code. And then they're connected by these things called introns, which mm -hmm. don't code. So they're okay. like they're glue that stick together the others and no one, we don't know what they're for. 
And that's where you find those, well, special codings? Or? That's where we found a sequence, uh -huh. which was found in almost all of our psychic cases and almost okay. none of the control cases. Interesting. So this suggests that uh, the, there may in fact be a genetic uh, underpinning for people mm -hmm. who have these sensitivities. Mm -hmm. And it should not be too surprising either because we, we find that there are certainly a constellation of genes that, that code for different kinds of intelligence, so-called crystalline and fluid intelligence, different mm -hmm. ways they can be intelligent. And it codes for lots and lots of other things. And it's only in rec recent years that we have the both the statistical tools and the bioinformatics and the computer ability to be able to take massive amounts of genomic information yeah. and look for relationships that might involve hundreds of genes. And very little is known about, in this point about the junk DNA. Like, what does that do? Mm -hmm. Well, there are methods that can be used. We will be using those methods, like something called RNA-seq, which is a way of sequencing RNA to begin to look at uh, even relatively unusual talents of this type, which suggests that, yeah, there, there's a difference. What makes this even more interesting is there's a correlation between genetic types and characteristics of genetics and culture. Right. So there happens to be, with this particular sequence, a correlation with culture, but it's a negative correlation, meaning that this particular culture in history does not show this. It does not show this apparent predilection or genetic predilection for being psychic or at least right. having some abilities. And the, the single word that describes it is Christianity. Okay. <laughs> and we think about, well, why is that? Well, you've had persecution of people yeah. Yeah. for hundreds of years, maybe even to the present day, that suppressed, yeah. the, suppressed in the population people who are expressing those abilities. Now, it's, at, the, at, the, at the positive side, some of them probably were, became saints because they were able to do extraordinary yeah. things, yeah. but not many of them. And not the masses, yeah. No, yeah. the masses got squashed, right. in which case the, it's primarily countries that are known now for being Catholic. So Italy, perhaps Spain, some places around there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a deficit created by years of genetic engineering among the, the population that has suppressed that group it's a survival uh, trait basically because you had to avoid that in order to survive and not to be persecuted and maybe killed right yeah uh, right but is that epigenetics in your in your view or is it not that short sighted? we don't know yet we don't know. right 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 but how does that link to what you said very early in this interview about mythology because somehow that uh, now you have the scientific explanation for certain things or at least approaches to an explanation on the other side you have the The, 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 the tradition, you have shamans in all parts of the world, you have experiences, psychic experiences that have been written down, magical books, you just made grimoires and all of that. Uh, do you already find or see a link between the two or is that too far-fetched yet? No, I think there, there is a link. Because one way of thinking about uh, grimoires and what shamans do and the ritual side of the use of psychic yes. phenomena, mm -hmm. magical practices, is that it describes a reality which is basically symbolic, mm -hmm. right? So w words, when you, you cast a spell involving words, 
the words themselves are thought to actually be the raw material from which the the universe is created, or at least the physical world is created. Yeah. So writing magic has been around since people learned how to write. Uh, the words used in in rituals are very carefully protected because the symbols are very important. Uh, and surprisingly, or maybe not so, that uh, the idea of a symbolic reality is very, very close to leading edge ideas about information as the basis of reality. Because what yeah. what is information? Well, you can think of it in ter- classical terms like Shannon information and a few other forms of mathematical descriptions of information. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it comes down to mind-like stuff, like symbols, like a linguistic a linguistic way of thinking about the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's completely compatible then with basically most most of the underlying assumptions and especially in magical practice, and you just find it saturated in, in the esoteric traditions. Uh, just to name one, like in the Kabbalah, the, the the I forget the name of the book now. One of the books of the Kabbalah is talking about uh, ten numbers and thirty-two letters, which yes. from which reality is created. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's so there, there are parallels that you can you can cast and whether the parallels are legitimate or not at this point, we don't know. We leave them as yeah. metaphors and analogies that this kind of thought has been around for a very long time coming out of the esoteric traditions. But we can see parallels and even in modern science. Maybe that question I have is too far fetched in that respect. But do you have an explanation or a theory, let's put it that way, on languages and their differences because i mean you cast a spell in a language but uh, shamans exist also in other places where they use other languages and they do somehow the same magic let's put it that way um with different words so how, how do we have an explanation for that well yeah the word is is a representation of a symbol which is a representation mm-hmm. of a meaning okay it's really about meaning so like the second level language is already second level so to speak yeah yeah right Right. Yeah, it's right. it's a it's an out, outer representation of an inner meaning. Yeah. So when I talk about a symbolic universe, I'm not talking about pictures, the pictures literally, but the meaning uh, that the pictures convey Absolutely. to consciousness. Yeah. Sure. That's also part of Freud's theory, actually partly in it yeah absolutely mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about this institute of noetic sciences because you're part of that if i am, am right or i don't know if you took yes we're also in the creation of it but you're an important part of it now and a what is noetic what is noetic sciences maybe you can give our listeners a short explanation for that and tell us a bit about it so the word noetic uh, the, it comes from the Greek word uh, nous, which means to know, but it means to know in a peculiar way where you're certain that you, what you know is true. And like any form of intuition, you don't know why you know it. So the, the, the prototypical case is somebody gets a, they might call it a download, they just get in a meditation or something, they get things that just show up and they know for certain that they're true. And if they're able to, to test it, they find that in fact it is true. Mm-hmm. So that's a noetic experience. It's this okay. deep, deep intuition that it carries a sense of knowingness or certainty with it. Mm-hmm. 
So our institute was started in 1973 by Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edgar had a, and that was 1972 when they landed on the moon. So uh, Edgar had a mystical experience on the way back to the Earth, where you, you actually see this among many of the astronauts, the so-called overview effect, where if you're able to see the Earth not as a map of nations and boundaries, but simply a ball sitting in space uh, all by itself, then you, you, it's easy to see why you get the realization that everything that you know, all of our history, all of our, our loves and hates and everything else are on this tiny little ball in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And you get a different sense of protection about it because it looks very fragile. The atmosphere in particular is very fragile. It's like a little soap bubble mm-hmm. around the earth. Mm-hmm. And we have evolved in such a way that we can walk around outside perfectly well most of the time, yeah. uh, protected by this very thin layer of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And that you can then sense the fragility of the planet. Of existence, yeah. And it reduces, among other things, all of the the usual politics and other reasons why everyone gets angry at each other and saying, don't you realize this precious gift of having, of being instantiated in a conscious, self-conscious way of, of living on this thing? So anyway, it sparked a mystical experience in him. He was going through this thought process. And like most mystical experiences, he felt like one with everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when he landed back on the earth, the next year he started our institute because he was so shocked and thrilled by this experience that as a uh, MIT trained scientist and a jet uh, test pilot and astronaut and all the rest, he was coming from this from a technical position of how do we understand what mystics throughout history have been trying to tell us, mm-hmm. especially in, in getting the sense of this fragility of this amazing planet that we're on. So the Institute was founded from the get-go in 1973. Uh, I was still in college then. Uh, with the idea of using the best tools and techniques that we have from a scientific perspective to try to understand what what are we? What what are these experiences? Are they illusory? Are they real? Uh, What methods can we use to study them? And much of, of the early work and now continuing now has been focused on psychic phenomena, primarily because those phenomena are completely amenable to scientific methods. Okay. So we, we can and have, and our colleagues can and have studied these things. And so we know with, with high degrees of certainty from a scientific perspective that most of the traditional psychic phenomena are real. Right. What we can't say is that any particular anecdote that somebody tells me about their experience is real. That would, We can never tell that. But we can tell that in general – much of the population under the right conditions can both experience and even demonstrate these things in a laboratory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So part of our work is then trying to understand, uh, it's not really proof oriented anymore. It's more trying to understand, well, how does it work? What are the properties of something like precognition? What is it good for? How do we make it better? Uh, what does this tell us about the nature of time and causality? Mm-hmm. And, and who we are and a bunch of other things that are all related to the same kinds of questions that I think anybody would would have, especially a scientist would have if they begin to accept the possibility that these phenomena are actually real. 
Right. I just invite everyone to go on the website. I will put the, the, the link to the website of the Institute uh, on, on the show notes also because it's a fascinating website. Is there any way of people who are interested in the work that you're doing there? Uh, is there something like readings you have there or, or lectures or, or uh, is there some work to the outside by the Institute or is that purely done on the level of the individual members of the staff there? No, we have a we have a science group that mm -hmm. is is working on the science side, but there's also a large group that is working on uh, engagement and mm -hmm. and also experience. So yeah. on the yeah. website, okay. you you see very quickly that there's they're all. I mean, in the old days, meaning before a pandemic, uh, we have a retreat center and people would yeah. come for workshops. Now we've moved almost all of that online. Right. So, uh, like tomorrow, I'm I'm part of a webinar looking uh, where we're discussing the idea of collective consciousness. Right. And we do that, I think, once a week now. So we have mm -hmm. webinars more or less constantly. Some of them are informational. Some of them are more experiential. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if somebody's interested and we have members from around the world. Uh, how, as a slight question, how do you personally experience, is that a rather opening the way for people from all over the world to attend those lectures, webinars, etc.? Uh, the fact that you have been forced by the corona crisis to do that, or is it rather limiting because you need personal experience for most of the experiences there to be effective? How would you see that? Well, we were doing webinars before the pandemic. We've just yeah. in increased what we've done right. before. Uh, and we're, we're slowly moving the kind of the workshops and things that we used to do in person to make those more available. Uh, I think the vast majority of people that, that we attract are... Uh, have had some kind of experience themselves. Mm. And because science is the, the currency of truth today, and, and I think realistically so, because we're, you know, we're able to make technologies that allow us to do this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's it, the proof is in the pudding that science and materialism are quite good at what they do. And so not surprisingly, if somebody has a mind-blowing experience and they've never told anyone, mm. this often happens because mm -hmm. they're afraid that people will think they're nutty. Sure. They're looking for some kind of uh, evidence or confirmation that they're not so nutty after all. Right. Yeah, you really can have a precognitive dream that really mm -hmm. does come true mm -hmm. later. And this is what we know about it in the laboratory. That is that's very satisfying for people. Right. And, and our surveys show that it's not only the fact or the case that the majority of the population in every country in the world believes in these things, but a much larger majority actually has experienced one or more different kinds of psychic effects. And the large majority of them have never told anyone. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. so we were providing, in a sense, a service to, to say, well, actually, science has learned a little bit about this. Mm. Uh, we know that uh, all kinds of people, completely normal people by any other measure, can have very strange experiences and it's part of what we're doing then is trying to break the taboo that prevents people from talking about it. Maybe a little by little that will develop a new genetic code again that will open more people to do that in, in counter movement of what you just explained with certain Catholic parts of the world. Yeah, if it's epigenetic, then yeah. absolutely, right? Yeah. Because among the, yeah. thing, the things that we know modulate these abilities include belief. 
Yeah. So if if you if you find some way that you can really believe in the nature of your experience and the science and all the rest of it, it opens the, the possibility of it being stronger. Right. Among the classical traditions of magic, occultism, esotericism, etc., that are being used nowadays and also are part of old culture, that famous popular culture, um, uh, is hermeticism. And it is often seen among the other things uh, as the most scientific, so to speak, of approaches to uh, that uh, part of, of thinking, right? Um, would you agree on that would you see that differently what, what's your take on on those schools and on hermeticism in particular well hermeticism uh, it, i look at it more from a from a historical and a comparative sense mm -hmm. so is neoplatonism better than hermeticism <laughs> is that better than the way that rosicrucianism has thought about it or theosophy and all the rest right i don't i don't think so okay. is kabbalah better i think what what happens is that people who become specialists in these various areas they will, will of course begin to love their particular discipline and see it as being more comprehensive than other methods mm -hmm. so there probably aren't very many neoplatonists around anymore uh there, there are certainly a rosicrucians and theosophists and so on so when you you look back you look backwards in history of where where's most of the meat that, that people are drawing from mm -hmm. it's somewhere between the kabbalah and hermeticism yeah but these 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 are shaped by culture and by history and yeah. by time and interpretation mm -hmm. what i'd rather uh, work toward which is one of the reasons why i wrote real magic and maybe thinking about another book is how do we take the best of what we know from many different traditions and the best of what we know from what the science has learned and mash it into something even newer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. we, we're always trying to make it better and more comprehensive. Right. And to, to take an esoteric view of the world and not pay attention to what science knows is a mistake. Just as a mistake to only look at science and not consider the other side. Yeah. So I think there, there's a way to integrate both views and create a, a larger worldview that accommodates both. And, and if we're lucky, goes beyond it. What would you suggest a person who is interested in that but does not have the scientific capacities nor the time because it doesn't want to do it as a professionalist but uh, as a highly interested individual what would you suggest to such a person to follow the approach that you take if he's interested they should read my book real magic okay Be Good. because yeah. that, that's essentially what, it, what it's about sure. it, it's a sure. way of saying that uh, yeah the ancient ideas about uh, magical practice and theory have a certain degree of truth to it Yeah. And we, we can show that using scientific methods. And then you know, a chapter in the, at the end of the book, I'm talking about uh, how the leading edge of science now mm -hmm. incorporates some of it. it yeah. It's incorporating it in, in, a, in a pale way. It's like it's not even recognizing that this is coming out of the esoteric tradition. Or maybe it does, but the people who are writing about it don't want to admit that. Mm -hmm. In any case, they're, they're, I'm pointing towards an integration 
Right. Uh, and so the other books I'm thinking about going into will will follow that path even more. And and it is true that it's it's difficult to write books about science that are for the general population because you, you have to write it for someone who doesn't exactly know what the jargon is or what exactly. even the methods. Yeah. But I'm doing the best that I can, and I can tell from sales if people are uh, resonating uh, with it. So. Uh, well, concerning real magic, I can say you're doing a very good job on that. I understood it. Oh, good, <laughs> good. Well, that's that's I my hope goal. So. I hope so, at least. Um, yeah. uh, no, but you just mentioned that uh, that you were thinking about other books, and that's unfortunately already for today, at least my last question, because we are already at the end of our interview today. Um, but um, what are your future plans that for the near future let's say or for the maybe not so near future uh, but books or maybe other projects that you have that you would like to share with our audience well so one is with uh, Bernd Otto uh, who uh, is a scholar of magic in mm -hmm. esoterica and so we're working together on what we think may be the first survey of practicing magicians mm -hmm. uh, to find out what they actually do And, right. and also what what works for them, what doesn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. And so that, that could turn into a book which we're roughly thinking about as, as practical magic. Like what, what do contemporary magicians do today, given that we're in a secular world? Why, why is it working for them? And that's what, what, some, some survey that has never been done before, as I know. We're not aware of surveys yeah, of this yeah, type yeah. because it, it wouldn't occur to a, a typical academic to ask mm -hmm. people who are actively practicing magic, what are you doing? Why does it work? Yeah, sure. The other thing that there's some, I'm asking demographic questions too. Like we want to know, well, what is your day job? Mm -hmm. Can you make a living as a full-time magician? Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe not, but but we don't know. So that's yeah. that's why we're we're asking these questions. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one direction is practical magic. I know that if if we write the book, we could write two books actually. One would be a scholarly book because there's mm -hmm. tons of material that we can go in there, and then a more popular version of it. Right. This other line I'm thinking of is uh, part of it is I'm thinking that Einstein was right when he was objecting about the idea that uh, God doesn't play dice with the universe, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the fundamentals of quantum mechanics says that things happen with no cause at all. Yeah. At, yeah. at, at bottom. Yeah. Th that in turn gives rise to a nihilistic perspective of the universe. Sure. And I know college students become very upset when they start uh, incorporating that into their worldview mm -hmm. because then nothing matters. Yeah. Right? yeah. Everything is pointless. Yeah. Why bother yeah. to do anything? It's all going to yeah. run down. Entropy is going to kill everything. You die. That's the end of it. There's, there's no meaning anymore. But what if Einstein was actually right? And what we see as a causal actually does have a cause. Mm -hmm. And if you take an idealistic perspective, that actually begins to make some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can, you, even in science, you can say, well, like Mach's principle is saying that uh, gravity permeates everything in the universe. So nothing is really separate. Yes. You take a quantum mechanical point of view with the same thing. Entailment is everywhere. It, it may even create space time as far as yeah. we can tell, yeah. in which case the entire universe is already a single holistic object, in which case you can't have anything that's separate from anywhere, anything else. Mm -hmm. So in a laboratory, when we're studying uh, uh, the effect of mind on matter, one of the popular targets that we use are random systems. 
because they're easy to understand statistically and because when you think of the amount of energy it takes to create a random bit that goes one versus zero, it's almost infinitesimally small. So mm -hmm. it's a good target to use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe what we then see as a, a random movement or even as noise in physical systems is actually the effect of the rest of the universe. Okay. If the rest of the universe involves consciousness, which I think is the case, does, yeah. then things are getting shoved around all over the place all the time by innumerable minds and intentions and beliefs and whatever, like mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. the, whole, the whole shebang. Figuring out a way of both testing that is not so easy, but so what? You know, there are all kinds of interesting challenges out there. If we can move in that direction and actually show that Einstein's complaint was actually correct and that some forms of randomness that we can now demonstrate, and I'm working on this now as one of my projects, some things that we think are random are actually not random after all. Well, that sounds really exciting. I wish you the best of luck with that and, and also all your other projects. Um, it was a fascinating talk. We could go on for some time, but maybe we do that another time and continue at some point. Um, thank you for your time today. Uh, it was great to have you and uh, wish you best of luck with all your projects. Thank you very much.
Within the Leaves was the third track that we took today from the CD Presence by Californian artist Old Million I. He's going by the real name of Brian Lucas. He is a writer, he is a visual artist and a musician, and you can find all the information about him, who is also a listener of the Thoth Hermes podcast, in the web notes in the show notes on the webpage of thoughthermes.com. Thank you, Dr. Dean Redin, for being with us here today. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And I think that our listeners enjoyed highly what you had to say. And I can only invite you to go and read those books because they give you much more information are really helpful also in a field that is not so often well treated, I must say. Thank you again. Well, that was episode two of this season five that we started last week. And this show comes now to an end. Thank you for being with me here today. Thank you for listening and be always trustful to what we have to present here. That's very kind of you. I hope you come back next week because there will be another nice interview. Very different again from today. As always, next week we are going to have another artist but she is more than an artist she is an occultist she well let me say in her words how charlotte rogers who is our guest next week british artist charlotte rogers how she defines herself she says i am an animist artist and author who works with the remnants of the dead and the discarded to create talismanic and totemic art I welcome the insight and stimulus that comes with the unexpected, the strange and the challenging. This doesn't make my life easier, but it definitely makes it interesting. And an interesting talk it was, I must say, and I'm very much looking forward to present it to you next week on July 19 on this show. Okay, and once again, the two things I would like to remind you, if you have questions for Frater Acker, post them to me on info.thermis.com. You've got another 10 days to do so. And be on the lookout next week for the announcement that I have to make on the Thoth Hermes Academy. I think many of you will be really interested in that. Okay, guys and listeners, thank you for being with me today once again. And I look forward to have you back next week. And for now, I'm saying... Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.